0: Good morning and welcome to SumZero Headlines. This is Avery Pagan. Today, we have an excellent conversation for you with a handful of SumZero's crypto managers to discuss Bitcoin's strengths, shortcomings, and competitors. First, we'll sit down with Josh Kernan and Ian Del Balso of Permian Capital Management, the San Francisco-based fund running a mid-market digital asset strategy. The Permian team looks beyond Bitcoin, invested in lesser-known assets such as basic attention token, and the Brave browser, which sits atop the Ethereum blockchain. Afterwards, we'll hear the case for Bitcoin from Ben Asget of Wealthmark LLC. Esget will touch on the Bitcoin halving deadline set for May 2020 and monetary policy as near-term catalysts. Without further ado, let's dive into this topic with our guests from Permian Capital Management.
1: Uh, welcome, everyone, to Sum Zero. Uh, we're going to have a really interesting podcast today. Um, our guests are uh, Josh Kernan and Ian Delp, also from Permian Capital, which is a, a crypto focused fund uh, based out of San Francisco. Um, and uh, I think they're going to have a lot of interesting, interesting things to say, not just about Bitcoin, but about the crypto, um, the broader crypto asset class, uh, specifically basic attention token which has uh, received a fair bit of attention. Um, And yeah, actually, Josh, why don't I throw it off to you? If you can just quickly um, tell us uh, a little bit about the fund strategy and um, how you guys think about the crypto space. Thank you, Divya. Uh,
2: Permian Capital
1: was founded two years ago
2: uh, by my partners, uh, Sean Mali and Matt Maravec. And they brought to the table uh, 10 years each of experience uh, both worth working in tech companies, but also in the case of Matt, our chief investment officer, he had a very unique background of being trained as an engineer, working as a blockchain engineer, uh, but also at the age of 12, having, having been given an E-Trade account and $10,000 by his dad and told to you know, make any money that he needed to spend out of that account. So he had this ability to actually uh, review and research equities um, and and did so very successfully actually building up uh, to top 50 Motley Fool portfolio globally uh, by the time he was in college. Uh, So what really struck me when I met Matt initially was the fact that here's a guy who's really good at picking stocks and he really focused mostly on the tech space and had been very successful doing so. Uh, But when I met him uh, over two years ago, He didn't invest in any stocks anymore and only invested in digital assets, cryptocurrencies. And when I asked him why he said, because that's where the best risk return is going to be going forward. So to me, that was a great indicator of why we needed a fund that could allow uh, others to invest alongside with us.
1: Right. And from what I understand your fund um, has, though it has a fairly flexible mandate as far as crypto goes, you're not directly investing in Bitcoin as much as you are in, in some of the lesser known cryptocurrencies. What's the reason behind that?
2: Yeah, we, we position ourselves as a mid-market strategy. Uh, we believe that every investor should have an allocation to Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin over the past 11 years has the best risk return of any asset globally. Uh, and we believe that there's good reason why that will continue uh, but where we really add value is in the other cryptocurrencies, digital assets. What we do is we'll look at the top 200 by market cap and select somewhere between 8 and 12 that we believe will move into the top 10 by market cap over the next three to five years.
1: Great. And, and Ian, um, being an investor, uh, I'm just curious how you first came across Permian and you I get the sense that maybe you started out with Bitcoin personally and then started looking into other, uh, some of the nichier cryptocurrencies and and, and digital assets, but but just tell us. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was a
3: very early adopter on Bitcoin, but in late 2016, I started hearing about it, I started reading about it, and then, you know, probably mid-2017, I said, all right, this is something that it makes sense to participate in, I purchased a little bit of Bitcoin and started getting pretty intellectually obsessed with the whole subject matter. And I have a long-time friendship with Josh, and that was kind of happening, you know, in tandem with Josh, kind of like ramping up his knowledge of the, you know, crypto space, um And, you know, fast forward another six months, Josh went off and founded, uh, with his partners we just mentioned, a, a crypto fund. And I actually was one of the first investors in that fund. And r- really, I just saw, but you know, a tremendous opportunity in the whole digital asset space. I think that this is a space that's going to, you know, have, you know, more than just one participant. It's not just going to be Bitcoin. In a lot of ways, I looked at, uh, you know, Bitcoin as sort of a, a proxy or sort of a lead indicator as to what was possible in the space. And when I first started to, to get together with Josh and his partners, um, you know, as a kind of longtime active investor, I started seeing some pretty unique characteristics in Uh, the way Permian was approaching the space. Um, They had Josh as someone with a long tenure in traditional finance, having founded Charles Schwab's alternative asset uh, department in the mid-90s in San Francisco. But they also brought uh, Matt and Sean, a blockchain engineer and a computer scientist to the space. And it really occurred to me in trying to do due diligence outside of Bitcoin in itself that a real you know, technical and engineering skill set combined with traditional financial acumen was you know likely very much required to be successful in that in the space. And that's why I gravitated towards these guys.
1: And cool. Um so Josh, let's let's talk about some of the uh, the lesser known uh digital 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 tokens. Um I know you're you're obviously uh, bullish on basic attention token. If you can uh Tell the story behind that. I know the the founders have a pretty interesting background. um, That I think would be a good intro.
2: Yeah, so basic attention token is a great example of why you need other tokens than Bitcoin, right? So a lot of people will say, well, you know, the Bitcoin story looks so strong, has been so strong, you should only own Bitcoin. Well, uh, the founder of basic attention token and the founder of what's called the Brave Technologies or Brave Browser is a gentleman named Brendan Eich. And Brendan Ike is very important to the last technological revolution, which is the internet revolution, because he wrote JavaScript. So in a 10-day period, he actually wrote JavaScript. And if you look at everything that's been done on the internet since that point, it's all relied upon JavaScript. Unfortunately, his brilliant creation has begun to be abused. And so I think we can all relate to the situation where, you know, maybe we'll go on the computer and we'll search for a a family vacation to Hawaii. And then, you know, you're listening to Pandora while you're on a run later in the day and you get an advertisement, visit Hawaii. You know, how did that happen? Well, what happened was when you're searching on Google for your trip to Hawaii, Uh, your search information was sold to the highest bidder on an auction and so uh, one of the biggest trends these days in tech is privacy and we've all been okay with giving up our privacy uh, for free search you know or free services on the internet and so Brendan Ike said you know what I was part of causing that to be possible through the creation of JavaScript you know I want to make that Different. You know, I want to actually put um, this technology to good and uh, in between he actually started a browser called Firefox, which uh, many of us can remember using uh, was actually 45% of browser uh, market share when when uh, it first came out. And uh, so Brendan Ike knows both the browser business, he knows JavaScript. And so four years ago, he set out to build a new company called Brave. And uh, just this year launched uh, basically 1.0 of what's called the Brave browser. And uh, Brave is just like any other browser, does the exact same things that you can get through Google or um, uh, Google Chrome or Safari, Uh, but it's privacy by default. So basically, if you use the browser, any information captured by the browser is held at the browser level. It's not sent back to Brave. So it's completely anonymous and private to Brave. And um, this is a... Is it
1: it effectively kind of like going incognito in in Chrome? Yes. uh,
2: So um, it's similar but different. So even when you go incognito on Chrome, you may be incognito to the outside world, but you're not incognito to Google. So Google is still getting your search Mm -hmm. and using it and selling it, but um, it's the outside world that can't tell what you're doing. So it shows that there's differentiations in how private is private. Now, Brave can even take someone as far as actually they have a tour browser option where it's basically completely anonymous which we don't have a use for here in the u.s but if you're in a country where you could be persecuted for your beliefs just by searching for something that's contrary to your government's beliefs that's where you know something like tour could actually be valuable but um you know brave simply and at default just simply just blocks your privacy and by doing that, it's actually six times faster than any other browser. So what's important in tech? Uh, cheaper, better, faster, right? And so the Brave browser is clearly faster. And the reason it's faster is because what slows down search is actually ad tracking. So we're giving up performance to have our information tracked. So in the Brave browser, um, two things happen. One. It's a faster search, but two, if you're on a laptop or if you're on your phone, you actually drain about one third less battery than you normally would. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you actually drain on your phone one third less data. So it's sort of uh, appalling that actually we pay for data that a third of that data use is actually people tracking our activity to be able to show us ads. So, Brendan and I saw early on that this was something that was wrong uh, and had to be changed. And so he's come out with this great browser called Brave and now uh, 40 million people have already downloaded it on Android. Um, It is the top downloaded browser in the country of Japan. It's the top downloaded browser in Israel. And it's just been released uh, fully on uh, iOS. So now Apple phone users, Apple laptop users can now download and use Brave. So great browser. So how does
1: the basic attention token tie into the browser? So um, they've created this great
2: browser and what they decided was, okay, you know, ads are not necessarily bad. You know, we've accepted the fact that, you know, we'll take ads to be able to get free search, but Brave took it to a another level which was to say why don't we pay users for them to watch ads and so as a user you can opt in on your browser to see one to five ads per hour it's your choice if you view those ads you'll actually be paid 70% of the revenue that that advertiser would typically pay to a browser So um, Google today takes 100%, right? And goes back to their company and their shareholders. Uh, With Brave, the same ad, same cost, they take 70% of that revenue and pay it to the user. And the way they pay it to the user is through a wallet embedded in the browser that accepts micropayments of what's called basic attention token. So basic attention token is a separate token through the basic attention token nonprofit that monetizes your attention. So it the utility is to pay for your attention and it has the same scarcity model as Bitcoin in that there was 1.5 billion basic attention tokens created and uh, the initial coin offering uh, a year and a half ago, raised $30 million in 45 seconds. So it was a very popular ICO,
1: and- um, This was before the ICO market collapsed, or was
2: it? It was actually, it was like March of 2018, so on the tail end oh, I see. Okay. Of, of the you know the yeah. collapse, if you will. But um, still, because of Brendan Zyke's pedigree and his background, um, and the fact that they already put three years in building the browser, there was a real uh, belief that they would be successful. Yeah.
1: So for every dollar that an advertiser spends to target a user on Brave, 70 cents go to the user, right. 30 percent um, goes, goes, goes to Brave, to Brave. right. Okay. So that that is that their sole revenue source as far yes. as their business model goes. Yeah. Interesting.
2: So so the model for Brave right now is burning down the 30 million that they collected through the ICO Mm -hmm. and increasing the revenue that's coming through their increased number of advertisers that are showing ads on Brave. Mm -hmm. And so um, many people say, well, how come I haven't heard about this? Well, they still a small company. You're still looking at, you know, 30 million. That's kind of series A level of company. But what's unique because uh, Basic Attention Token is a digital asset, it's actually uh, 29 by market cap
1: in the you know
2: the ranking rankings, of market right. caps.
1: So the value of the Basic Attention Token circulating supply is what right now is it? Important?
2: So the the actual value that's in circulation is 1.35 billion today of 1.5 billion created.
1: And each of those is
2: currently worth um, 20 cents, 20 cents a token Um, at ICO came out at $1 per token. So it's still far below its ICO. Right. And so we view it as being uh, one of these unappreciated opportunities because you have 10 million people that are using this browser every month. You have the ability for these 10 million people to earn micropayments as they search the internet. And every time an advertiser buys buys advertising, what they end up doing is actually buy basic attention token. So there's this uh, very um, consistent cycle of usage and utility for basic attention token that only increases as the number of uh, browser users
1: increase. The the advertiser uh, pays for the ad with basic attention token as well.
2: Yeah. And and so the good news is the advertiser doesn't have to figure out how to buy crypto. They simply pay in fiat money to Brave and then Brave purchases the basic attention token Um, for the advertiser. But there's not a you know there's no uh, ability for the advertiser to simply pay cash and not pay
1: the basic attention token. And if you're a browser user, once you have the token, you can convert it to other cryptocurrencies. pretty Correct. easily right?
2: Um, there's you could uh, sell it to U.S. dollars via uh, Uphold or Coinbase. You could convert it to basic uh, basic attention token to Bitcoin you know, via Coinbase or Uphold. So there's a lot of options for the user as to what to do. With yeah, the when did Coinbase start accepting? Uh, it was September of 2018. Okay. So one of the, when we looked at this investment, we uh, made our first investment in summer of 2018, based just on the fundamental growth that we were seeing of the browser, which wasn't even out of beta at that point. And then um, also, uh, due to the fact that it had come down significantly down to 11 cents from a $1 ICO, we felt like it had bottomed out. And so we we then took that investment from 11 cents to about 55 cents, at which point we thought that it had gotten ahead of itself in terms of valuation based on its current trajectory of users. Um, we exited the position and then we waited for a reset, which we got again this summer. And so we're
1: now investors again into the token. Is Brave the the company uh, for-profit or non-profit?
2: It's a for-profit company. Um, The token, you know, just like Ethereum is a foundation, a a non-profit foundation. The token is built as an ERC-20 token on top of Ethereum.
1: And, and, uh, given that the business is a for-profit just curious who are the equity holders in, in Brave?
2: They got a very small um, equity investment uh, before they did their ICO raise I believe it was $5 million and it was um, a handful of Silicon Valley venture capital firms that did very small seed investment but if you look at their company they don't need go the route of next round of VC or IPO, because they were able to raise money via the tokens. And so now they have a sustainable business model with revenue
1: that allows them to keep,
2: you know, growing organically.
1: Is is, is there data on how much money they make they make from that 30% cut? You can back into it,
2: um, but it looks, we're very confident that they are. And how
1: would you back into it? You'd have to know the advertising exactly you'd have to know what the advertisers
2: pay right you know which can be estimated okay and um part of that is because of the fact that they are going through advertising aggregators like so for example uh they've been showing this week amazon um holiday ads and so that was not done through a arrangement with amazon directly that's done through an advertising aggregator that basically Finds places for Amazon to advertise.
1: Yeah, um, Josh, you mentioned earlier that you know this token is an ERC twenty token, which, from my understanding, just means it's it's based on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there. But um, where do you see Ethereum going? Is because I know uh, you know there's a lot of philosophical discussion around you know whether the value of the blockchain is in sort of these foundational layers where I think Ethereum would sit versus um, kind of the the secondary, you know, kind of the layers above, uh, which would be something like basic attention token that lives on Ethereum. Uh, Just curious what you think about that.
2: Yeah, it's uh, right now, Ethereum represents about 8% of the market cap of uh, the cryptocurrency universe. So it's the second largest Cryptocurrency by market cap uh, to Bitcoin, which is still at 66%. So Ethereum has a long way to becoming where Bitcoin is. But one of the reasons why we think Ethereum could uh, make up some significant ground ground on Bitcoin is the fact that it has become the platform for 90% of the digital assets out there. So 90% of the other digital assets are built on ERC-20 or similar Ethereum uh, platform foundation. Now, to your point, um, where does the value lie? Does it value lie in Ethereum, because none of these could exist without Ethereum, or do they lie in the individual tokens like basic Attention token? And one of the things that we think will equalize it a bit because right now most of the value is actually on the individual tokens, not Ethereum, uh, is this move to uh, Ethereum 2.0 that's going to happen in the beginning of the year. Uh, Because one of the challenges with Ethereum today is gas usage is fairly expensive. And so uh, what we're hearing is that Ethereum 2.0 is going to actually make uh, the, the use of Ethereum a lot faster and cheaper. And and so what that'll do, we believe, is just equalize the value somewhat. Are you
1: referring to the transition to proof of stake? Correct. Okay. Correct. Is is that gonna be like a fork of the existing Ethereum blockchain? It's it's not gonna
2: be a fork, it's gonna be an upgrade. An upgrade. Correct. Um, Unlike, uh, right, the fork that happened for Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash and, and all these right. new versions. of and,
1: and do you see a threat from, uh, I forget, is it Cardano? There are a few others that are IOTAs, another kind of Ethereum. There are a number EOS, of these you know, Ethereum or EOS. There yeah, are a bunch sorry. of other ones
3: that claim to be faster and better. Uh, right. They don't have the amount of developers uh out there, and so you know, from a developer and distribution standpoint, Ethereum really has a, a, a huge leg up. Doesn't mean some of those projects, you know, won't be successful, but just because of the, like, the huge leg up and the sheer number of projects that you've got today on Ethereum, we think, yeah, just that distribution and reach is and going to be pretty powerful.
1: And what's the timing of Ethereum 2.0? So That's going to be
2: last we heard January of 2020. Um, we still it's right around the corner. It, it's coming <laughs> up very soon. Yeah. Um, I think when you look at the increase in usage of Ethereum, uh, whether it be activity actually on Ethereum or you know, nodes being run or people involved with Ethereum in terms of developers, the fun- fundamentals have, have only been positive and growing significantly over the past year. Yet the price is only up thirty seven percent year to date. Um, so I think Ethereum is another one that we believe uh, has lagged in uh, price
1: compared to uh, utility. What's interesting is, I from a media standpoint, you never hear anyone talk about uh, basic attention token. Of course, being it's in the top fifty, but it's not in the top ten. But you don't even hear people talk about Ethereum. Right. Um, th- you know, I you see that changing at all? I mean, what's sort of the catalyst to get more of a dialogue um, in in sort of the mainstream about, um, you know, some of these these digital assets that really aren't really, I mean, they're just not on people's radars.
2: Yeah. It's uh, one of the reasons we've come to New York is the fact that, you know, in the, in the San Francisco Bay area, you're talking with very, you know, tech, you know, Uh, comfortable people. It's a bubble. Yeah. But a lot of time they're kind of just repeating your sentences or finishing your sentences. And uh, so I've spent the day at an institutional investor conference here in New York. And one of the things they see is that there's real benefits in terms of risk return uh, reward for investing in digital assets, but they don't have the education yet to even understand where to invest.
1: Education is obviously one hurdle. Um, what are the other institutional roadblocks for, you know, uh, institutional money managers, hedge funds, or mutual funds? Is it, is it custody? Is it where are you seeing the, the bottlenecks?
2: So, an institutional investor has three different ways they can participate in this um, blockchain investment area. So, one is your traditional venture capital equity investment where. Uh, they're going to go with a manager uh, who is investing in different blockchain-related companies. They're generally going to be companies they are building the infrastructure for what they believe is the coming blockchain you know, revolution, and you own equity in those companies. So that's option one. Like any other venture capital, your median hold on that is 15 years. Option two is you can invest directly in these liquid digital assets where you're buying Bitcoin on the exchange or you're buying basic attention token um, and and you somehow figure out which ones you wanna buy and you buy those directly. And then option three uh, is what Permian Capital does which is you basically allocate money uh, to an experienced manager that understands the space who will purchase those digital asset tokens for you directly. Um, and basically will understand when they're undervalued overvalued and basically actively manage them. And, you know, when I first got into the space, it reminded me when I was at Charles Schwab in the early nineties, you had mostly just high net worth investors that were investing in hedge funds and they were giving money to managers that really understood a very niche market and would concentrate money in the bets they believed would pay off the best. And so, You had the best returns in the hedge fund world coming out in the nineties and most of those returns didn't reappear in the two thousands because all of a sudden, all this institutional money came in and asked it to be much more risk aware. Uh, So we kind of view this digital asset space is the same way. You're going to get the best returns in the early days, but you're going to have to do it with a little bit of a leap of faith in that you're not going to know everything yourself. And so that's why, when allocating the space, finding a good manager, whether you go the venture capital equity route or you go the liquid token route, is critical.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, well, guys, I, I think that was super enlightening. I think we can uh, we can close on that note. And uh, thanks for joining us. Very interesting. Thank you, Danielle.
2: Thank you.
0: Okay, lots to think about there with regards to crypto-powered online advertising. We should also mention that Brave announced a high watermark in early December of 3.3 million daily active users, having tripled its user base in just one year. Definitely not your average growth stats. Now let's hear from Ben Esget on the enduring strengths of Bitcoin.
1: I know you're... You're traditionally yeah. more of a value guy, but but if you could just kind of tell us how you came uh, yeah. came to, to Bitcoin in the first place, that'd be a good good intro. Yeah, I I think uh, I think like a lot of people, we started you know hearing a lot about it
4: about five years ago, and it just became more and more interesting. At first, I was like, this is ridiculous, and then it just kind of got to the point where you couldn't ignore it. I think I think a lot of people, I. Obviously, I think that's why you're doing the podcast, because it has got to a point where people are are taking notice of it. And I, when something I find interesting like that, a lot of people's first reaction is just to dismiss it, and mine is to try to learn everything I can about it. So I just started reading books and uh, watching a lot of stuff. There's a great book called The uh, Bitcoin Standard, which I think is excellent. I think everyone should read it. And... You know, I, I don't have crystal ball, but I think it makes a pretty good case of uh, what's going on in that world.
1: Were, were you and, a were you a gold guy before uh, Bitcoin? No, no, I was probably more like a in the camp of maybe you want to own some gold, not like not like a gold bug or anything. Um, I think the main case for gold, that having some, is mostly as a rebalancing position. You know. And, um, our research shows that the, the real strength of gold isn't that it's some hard asset or has magical properties it's really that it's really non correlated uh, we have a chart that shows the correlation of just about every single asset and they move so tight because of credit the only two we can find that don't really move in sync with everything else is treasuries and gold so you can make a good case that just as a for a rebalancing position it, it has some place. And, and Ray Dalio has been making that case for years, so I think it's warranted. Yeah, I, I only ask because I, I think a lot of the folks who are very bullish on Bitcoin today um, think of it as a gold 2.0, um, yeah, and yeah, that's, you know, the, the, and I that. right. And and from a you know evaluation standpoint, um, when you think about valuation frameworks as it relates to Bitcoin and 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 to a few of the other cryptocurrencies. Um, the relative comparison of market caps is is one of the probably most popular valuation frameworks for gold, or, or rather for Bitcoin. Um, you know where folks will say, well, gold has a certain market cap, silver has a certain market cap. You know where does where does Bitcoin fit in relative to the you know to other commodities? Um, and that's been a, I think it's been a pretty common way to think about Bitcoin from a valuation standpoint. Your submission on sum zero I thought was interesting because it, it relied. You know, heavily on this whole stock to flow um, framework, which I I, I think has been, you know, it's hit, it's it's in, it's talked about here and there, but I don't think of it as a mainstream argument for how to think about valuing gold, or rather, Bitcoin. So, if you can just give a little bit of a, you know, fundamental uh, overview of what that valuation framework is and 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 how it applies to Bitcoin, I think a lot of people would find that very interesting.
4: Yeah, no problem. I, uh, that's, I mean, honestly, that's what our firm excels at. We uh, years ago we started really trying to dive into assets, asset classes, everything, and look at it from a supply and demand view. And I really think that is the best way to do it. We, and then when we look at future pricing, what we find on just about every single asset is what really moves the price is uh, elasticity of demand into the future and a lack of elasticity of supply into the price of supply into the future. And that's what the stock flow model is. It's, it's, It's tackling the supply side of Bitcoin into the future. And it basically boils down to how much can demand be met with the current inventory versus how much can demand be met with new inventory that's brought online. And obviously with like gold or silver, it's mined. So it's a little less noble, but it's, it's still pretty darn hard to bring new supply on to, uh, onto the market. So gold has for years had to be met more or less with the inventory that's, that's already there. And uh, the stock flow model works not only for Bitcoin, it works for gold and silver, and it, it explains at least half the equation of supply and demand. So then it just comes down to how much demand is gonna be there. And that's, you know, that's a different conversation. Well, well
1: even before we get to the demand side, um, can you just, for especially for folks who aren't as familiar with um, the the halving process, um, yep. if you can just kind of outline that, that'd be helpful. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of a genius thing uh,
4: that, that they created. So the actual, whoever invented Bitcoin isn't completely known. Uh, the world calls it Shitoshi Nakatomo, Nakatomo because nobody actually knows who created it, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and when he put it together, that he created a distributed ledger, and the way transactions are essentially verified on the distributed ledger is uh, you do the computing work to basically say, no, we, we verify this transaction. When you verify the transaction, you get paid in Bitcoin. That's what's called the mining process. I don't really think most people even understand that. So what he set up was, over time, the amount of reward you would get for doing that computational distributive ledger work would get cut in half periodically over time. Next year is one of those halving processes. That literally means that uh, the amount of new inventory that can brought, be brought onto the market is limited. Uh, numerically,
1: and that was that was a cool feature that he added. I mean, I think it's a huge. So, step. so the next having, from what I understand, is in May of 2020. Is that date correct? Yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. And then, when, what would be the, the one after that? Um, I think it's a few years after that. I have the chart
4: right here on my computer. Uh, it's uh, it's in 2024.
1: 20, okay, and and I, I thought what was interesting was that, you know, again going back to the stock to flow model. Um, uh, the, the the I guess the thesis behind that model is the higher that ratio of stock to flow, um, you know the the more room there is for the asset to grow in price. Essentially, I mean, is that one way to think about it?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, this is the way I personally think about it. Assuming there's enough demand out there for it to do anything, all right. I mean, there still has to be people that want to own anything. So, assuming there's enough demand, you're saying that demand will, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to bring in new inventory to meet it, which means it has to be met by the current inventory. Right. Literally what it comes down to, but it does mean you have to have some demand
1: for it still. But, But when you look at the, when you look at the multiple, you're, you're looking at today's market cap of Bitcoin versus, uh, I guess tomorrow's or even today's um flow of newly minted coins right and yeah, and that yeah, ratio yeah, yeah. today i think you were saying is approximately half of gold but post having obviously it'll get a lot you know closer to gold's ratio yeah is yeah. that the basic so, gist of it yeah yeah if you look at the stock to flow model it's pretty fascinating because essentially silver gold bitcoin a lot of things seem to
4: function off this this supply characteristic, um, Bitcoin passed silver uh, sometime about a year, year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Sometime in the next two years, it passes gold. And sometime in the next five years, it will literally have the highest stock to flow model. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the highest stock to flow of any
1: asset ever known man, And it's really hard to know what happens at that point, but I think it's interesting and I think it, I think people should be more interested in it just because of that. And what's to say that, you know, I mean I guess the other side of the equation is the demand, right? So we, we kind of, can, <laughs> we can kind of tell that the supply is predictable, um, somewhat yeah. predictable. We, we know when, when the coin or the, the mining reward will, will, will half, but um, as far as the demand goes I mean, do you have a strong view on, you know, yeah, why demand would either be stable or increase? Yeah. No, and that's a great question because that is, I mean, that is the, that's the real
4: question. The supply is pretty well documented. It's pretty well known. So then it comes down to, well, is there going to be demand? And I got to tell you, for me, that is the, that is the harder part to know. I personally think it'll be there. Um, my Our work using big data is pretty, it's pretty incredible when you dig into it. What we're seeing is that every single asset has way more convexity than anyone believes. Uh, If you look at from like '81 till now, PE multiples have gone from 7 to 30, okay? Cap rates have gone from 15 to 5. Now, real estate's also leveraged. So if you think it's, say, uh, leveraged 65%, well, you need to multiply that by 4. That means real estate's move more than treasuries with interest rates. Okay? Now, here's the weirdest detail from my view. The average rate cut by the Fed during a recession is 450 basis points. What does he get? 450. We're at 125 right now. I don't have a crystal ball, but I just look at this and go, oh, I think we're going to have a recession at some point, and when that occurs— I'm not sure a lot of these assets haven't been artificially held up by the Fed uh, for years. And this might be a different thing. I mean, think about it in these terms. This is the simplest way I can explain it to anyone. If you held all the assets steady, all the prices, all the fundamentals, and all the buyers and sellers steady for just a second, okay? And then I, the Federal Reserve, uh, change the interest rates and 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 introduce new liquidity into the market into the hands of those buyers. I literally move the supply and demand curve of every asset. Literally, that's what they do. And if they didn't, why would they do it? Why would they even bother? It obviously works that way. So I really do go. Well, what happens in the next day? This is going to be really interesting.
1: And do you have any any views on the timing of? Um, of a recession, I mean, you could I could easily see uh, Bitcoin sort of trading sideways um, or know, or up right. or down for a while. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I can tell you.
4: I can give you our best data. Um, we we actually have pretty good data on some of this. I'll tell you exactly what we're seeing. Um, and we have these are so when I when I give you these, we have an R squared. Of 35, uh, of 35, that next year will be a negative 10. If we go out two years, we have an R-squared of uh, 59 that we're going to see negative 7. If we go out three years, we have an R-squared of 72 that it's going to be negative 2. So, And if we go out 10, we're seeing an R-squared of 89 at 3.2% for the next 10 years. So
1: our odds are highly skewed towards a, a pretty good disrupt over the next three years. Our, our average for the next three years is negative four. And what is so, that based on? Uh, that's based on big data. We pull in about, about 15 different piles of data for that, and those are the r squareds on that going all the way back to 1950.
4: So we're seeing there's a real high likelihood Sometime in the next two to three years now, obviously we got the election cycle. Maybe they'll be able to to, uh, Hold it together till then. I think the feds gonna be forced to cut rates even further and I my hunch is sometime in the next two years I mean you got a 59% probability on that that uh, you're gonna see see some kind of pullback Um, now that's as good as we can do with predicting the future is we just pull in the data. Now, when we pull in that data and, it, and it's telling us that, well, you look at something like Bitcoin and a halving process in the next two years and it gives you some, some like that, that
1: looks more interesting even just as an option, as an optionality play. Can you talk about why you like Bitcoin uh, versus other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's
4: a fascinating question. Um, I'll I'll, I'll give you my two cents on it. There is something to an organic foundation of something. The other thing I think is really cool is Satoshi or whoever this gentleman is. When he created Bitcoin, he did what I believe is genius. He walked away. He founded it, he mined a little, when it was in its foundation, during the organic stage, and then he literally sent an email saying, I'm off to new ventures. He's not meddling with it, it's completely distributed. Literally, it's like he started the juggernaut going and, and then left. Everything else, everyone's trying to micromanage. You see with Ethereum, like they had this weird fork and, and it was kind of questionable. A lot of the other altcoins, it's like, you know, the founders will mine like a million and then, and then they'll let everyone know about it. And, it, and It's not organic. It, it's highly controlled. And I think for me, that's that's probably the biggest thing is that he walked away and it was formed organically. And I don't
1: think anything else has that property. Uh, any other catalysts, uh, I guess, before we wrap up? Um, just obviously there's the having. It seems like there's some institutional buy-in. Um, what are the other catalysts that you see kind of coming in the next six months, say, um, that could you know really help re-rate Bitcoin? It's been in a, in a yeah, little bit of a yeah. lull recently, so. Yeah, no, and that's,
3: you know that lull is interesting. It still is following
4: that stock flow model so tight; it is a head scratcher. And for anyone listening to this, if you just Google the stock flow model, you're going to see how tight Bitcoin is tracked. That model is very, very interesting. Now. The halving's one thing. I think, I gotta be honest, I think within the next two years, you might see zero interest rates here in America. The Fed has shown itself completely incapable of raising rates, like incapable. They tried the market, couldn't even handle a quarter point. So I think that's going to be the catalyst. I think interest rates at zero in America is coming, and I think that will drive I'm not going to say demand, but I think people are going to look at a lot of different options for once that they haven't had a look at probably since the 70s.
1: I, I think that's really interesting. I, I think we can end on that note. Um, people can can obviously ponder what a zero interest rate environment in the U.S. might yeah. mean. Um, but yeah. thanks, Ben, for uh, for giving us all your insights. Uh, this is really great.
0: Thanks for listening. That's all we have for you today. Please reach out to the SumZero team for warm introductions to either of these guests or with suggestions for future podcast episodes. Happy early holidays. We'll see you in 2020.